listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So, uh, let us begin. I will start by... um, I wanted to look at basically three levels of awareness. We call them the uh, gross, subtle, and causal levels of awareness. Okay? And I'm going to give you a hint. You're probably going to hate me for saying this, but writing this down is going to get in your way of just letting it fall on you. Just try it. Try it. And since it'll it'll be online, if you feel like listening to it again, um, it's, and the reason why I say that is because the, the, the way this stuff tends to work fastest, believe it or not, is to just let it, let it go. I think of it sometimes as like little Dixie cups of water. And if you just keep putting them on, pretty soon you get sopping wet. But it just takes a while. And our egos want it to happen now, right? So, so we can just try that, and then I'm, I'll let you take notes when, all you want. But just the gross, subtle, and causal. If we look at those three levels of consciousness, these are things that we experience every 24 hours. This is our waking state, this is our dreaming state, and this is our dreamless state. Okay? Now, it's very hard to recognize dreamless state of awareness, like in deep dreamless sleep called stage four sleep. It's very hard to recognize that, but you can. With a, meditate, with a meditation practice, this actually kind of creeps up on you. It's a, quite an amazing thing where you are essentially awake and aware of your gross or this experience that we're having right now together. You're alive in your dream, not lucid dreaming where you're manipulating the dream, but where you're there for it, very intimate with it, and you are, you are aware that dreaming is arising. Okay, And then this state here in the causal realm, there's no dream yet there is still awareness. It's quite amazing. But these are experienced constantly, okay? And we have these fancy names for them. In, uh, uh, we, we call them, bot- kaya means body. It's a, these, are, uh, these terminologies here are really quite, quite fancy. You don't need to, of course, memorize these. But we have the Nirmanakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Dharmakaya. We talk about this in uh, our, our chants sometimes, in, in my training at least, we, were, we did this prior to meals and so forth. We would talk about you know, how these, these represent different aspects of different Buddhas. Okay? Well, different Buddhas are, that's a fancy name of saying different aspects of one, one's own inner being. Okay? So rather than having like, you know, the, uh, I'm making this up, but the uh, Avalokiteshvara, or Kuan Yin, the, the Bodhisattva of infinite compassion, is not out there. It is in here and out there. Understand the difference? As opposed to praying to God, therefore, what we try to do is commune with God as God. Okay, so this creates then, instead of a separation from God, it creates a connectivity to God or to spirit. Think about that just for a moment. I mean, if we really ponder that idea that God is somehow outside of us, that's a deeply egotistical way of being. Okay, it's a deeply egotistical way of being. And that egotistical way of being, or in other words, perceiving that the world is made up of all things out there, 
and then me in here, that separation between me and everything else, that separation is a very high wall to climb, but that separation is what separates us from awakening to our true nature in all cases, in all cases. So anyway, we can look at this ascent, okay, if you want to call it that, or deepening, if you want to call it, however you want to look at this, as essentially our move from the gross, then to the subtle, to the causal, or occupying the normal, conventional body, namanakaya, the dream state, okay, or the subtle, the thought, would be sambhogakaya, or non-thinking, dharmakaya. This is tough, okay? Lots of people can get out of their primal bodily urges, okay? Lots of people can kind of go, you know what, I really want to go do that, but I probably shouldn't. This can be, this can be managed usually by, by people with just a little bit of discipline. Some people can't, but m most people can do this fairly, fairly well, or with a little bit of help they can. Here's the big trick, people getting past this. How does one get past one's intellect, past one's mind, all right? And it's not to deny the mind, but how do we actually work in a way that gets us past it, okay? So that it's still at our beck and call if we need it, but it is a tool for us rather than us getting tooled by it, okay? This is very difficult. And here, the dharmakaya is what happens in the space of no thought. Okay? It's awareness. It's openness. It's peace. It's fundamental emotional nature is joy. All right? This can be any number of things. All right? It can be any number, but this one is just open. It's at peace. It's relaxed. It's totally non-threatened because nothing can threaten it. This is perpetually, and this is perpetually, these are understates of threat constantly because they perceive that stuff is out there trying to get me, right? Or I need to get that to protect me from that, right? So this is very common that people just kind of orient themselves. They bounce back and forth or they center themselves right here, okay? This is, this is the trick, getting, getting into the dharmakaya. Yes? In terms of head, heart, and gut. Head, heart, and gut, yes. How would you factor that in? Because I'm sitting here feeling like I'm bilocated, kind of moving between these areas. That, but, and the, the two areas that you feel like you're moving between are? Kind of more a sense of the heart, mm -hmm. a sense of the gut, which is more presence, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's all really, it's nicely said. I, I think that um, head, heart, and gut are not separate. And if you are a person who tends to, and this is, again, just in my experience, if you are a person who tends to be very head-focused, okay, you really need to start paying attention to heart and gut. And if you are a heart and or gut person, you better start paying attention to mind, okay? Because but they both, both of those qualities help make up the sword that will cut through the veils of awakening, okay? I like to say that um, a sword takes tremendous skill to make well, 
all right? It's continually being, you know, uh, the forging process of a samurai sword, if you've ever watched it, I mean, it's fold, fold, pound out, fold, pound it out, fold, this tempering process that meditation offers us. It's work. It's the simplest thing in the world. Sit still. Shut up, sit still. You know, I mean, that's the simplest thing in the world, yet it's impossible to do well. <laughs> Even for, you know, people who've been doing it for a long time. And what meditation does, essentially, is it helps to balance all that stuff out so that being, being present here, okay, instead becomes being present everywhere, right? Okay? Let me come back to that. I think it's a great, that, that might be a great, might push me in a different direction for our discussion, but so let, let, me, let me come back to that. Looking at this little model here that I've drawn here, so we've got these concentric rings starting with this gross nirmana, nirmanakaya, the gross realm, the subtle realm or sambhogakaya, and then the causal realm or dharmakaya. Okay? We also then can look at this in terms of our social grouping as well. Uh, me, if we are very me-centered, okay, we're hanging on here. If it's me and you, it's our club, it's our tribe, okay, but not those people over there. We're locked, okay. And then in the all of us, that's where we recognize that each person is Buddha. Each person is Christ. Each person is totally, absolutely holy. They reflect us that all things arise to create me, all right? So this trajectory, this, this, this outward movement then becomes really, really interesting in terms of um, a meditation practice because what a meditation practice usually does is it forces our move from the, the gross realm. It forces us we, we start spending a lot of time in here. We start studying the me. We start r recognizing how much I feel a certain way, how much I there is, okay? And then we get together usually with the group where there are a lot of I's, a lot of me's in the group together, okay? What, a stillness practice or any type of uh, uh, spiritual work that we tend to do gets us into an opportunity where we can move outside of that particular boundary, okay? Normally, we will just stay there, okay? But as we begin to practice, as we begin to practice meditation increasingly, we then add to this space, add to the gross realm or to the me, we add me plus you. We add this Sambhogakaya, the subtle realm becomes something that we become practiced in, that we begin to literally study. And so meditation itself is studying the self. It's studying the self. It's studying the I sense. When you say I, whenever you use the personal pronoun I, what is your language pointing to? It's an open question. I don't expect you to answer it. And if you can, boom, you're here. You're off the chart. Okay? Now, that's not to say that an I is bad or that, that the I is something you need to get rid of. I always, it always cracks me up when people say, from different traditions, they say, well, you must kill the ego. And it's like, no, actually, you're not supposed to kill anything. That's part of the rule. <laughs> now, it's just a rule. Go ahead if you want. But uh, without an ego, you're not enlightened. You're what we call psychotic. 
Okay, and that's not really the the ultimate goal of of any you know authentic spiritual practice. Again, it's just my filter. You may disagree. I'm certain that there are others who do. Yeah, Dudley. You talked about observing the eye. Yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on techniques to develop the observer. Yeah. Because you know the observer observing thoughts and the chatter that goes on and trying to make control over it in some sense or dismiss it in some sense, but the more highly developed the observer is, the better one could presumably cope with all those that chatter and stuff that goes on. Right. So how does one how does one develop the observer? And then what are the techniques to develop the uh, the observer? Well, I, I, I think that's a that really leads to kind of where we're going here. I would say that um, there, there are all sorts of techniques. None of them will develop the observer. The observer is the only thing that is never not here. Okay? So if I could just move the language, shift it a little bit. The observer, f developing ways of uncovering the observer that's always already there. Okay. Like, as I speak right now, the participation that you and I are having is totally observer-informed. You could not uh, hear what I'm saying without the observer being aware, okay? So for those of you that, that uh, uh, if I can explain this maybe a little bit, little bit more, the observer is that in us which watches or observes or witnesses everything that arises in our experience. Did you say that again? The observer or witness or watcher is everything, is, is, it's what observes everything that arises in our awareness. So, if you get a sense of ego, ever, we talk in our Sangha about the skin of ego. This has been a major theme over the last few weeks. We can feel the skin of our ego. It's very hard to identify what exactly does the ego look like. Well, no, none of you, none of, you know, no person has seen their ego, but they feel it all the time. They feel it all the time. It's anything in us that feels resistance. Anytime you feel resistance, there you go. There you go, ego. Right? There you go. <laughs> A little pun there. I had to throw that in. Okay. Sleeplessness. Yeah, sleeplessness. Exactly. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful practice to begin to study your experience and study it as it is. As it is. So the tendency in us to compartmentalize, to categorize, and to resist. Every one of those things right there is ego. And if you don't like the term ego, if that's too loaded for you, there's an equally cool word that we can use. It's mind. Mind. In fact, awakening past Nirmanakaya, past Sambhogakaya, past nirmanakaya, excuse me, dharmakaya, is no mind. It's no mind. That's why we, we refer to it in Zen. And you get there whenever you are between your thoughts and you're aware. When you're consciously meeting awareness in a space that is not hindered by mind. In a space that is not Hindered by mind. How does mind hinder? Okay. By the end, I, I, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to complete that that.
that, uh, that thought about how we develop these techniques. So just stick with me for a little bit and keep asking if I don't, if I don't hammer it. What happens here is mind can only exist in one of two spaces. Three, I'll make three, okay? And those two spaces are past as a memory. All mind is a, all ego comes from memories, comes from judgments. Mind and ego, it's about judgments. The third place are plans. Mind and ego, they're all about plans. It, they exist because of things that have not happened yet or things that have already happened, which then allows them to judge, categorize, and compartmentalize and resist. Yeah? Okay? So if we can ever get to a place where we openly accept whatever arises in our experience as it is, we then are ascending. Okay? <laughs> Now, this is tricky because we are conditioned to categorize, compartmentalize, judge, and therefore we are always trying to be in control, all right? And we orient that sense of control based on past experiences and future wants. So essentially, where are we always staying? We're always here. Or we're going to go here as long as somebody else helps us get those goals met. And the minute they don't, they're out, okay? We stay here. Right? This could be a spouse, this could be a friend, this could be a group, this could, right? This is it, this still, we, we are still locked into a support mechanization here, a support group that makes us feel better about who the me is. And this me-go, or ego, or mind, or whatever, then still is in charge. It's not until more stillness occurs, okay, and we get to a place where the observer where the observer actually begins our central orientation. Our center of gravity shifts from being so contracted, it begins to expand more, and then it begins to expand even more into a space where it's no longer about me. It's not about my understanding. It's not about what I want. It's about all those things plus its inherent interconnection with everything else. Nothing is left out. Just like nothing is left out as the sun radiates on the earth. It does not pick and choose who it will shine on. There may be clouds in the way that obfuscate its, you know, its bombardment of solar radiation, but it doesn't pick and choose, nor does our awakening. Awakening does not pick and choose. Okay? It's just, do we have the ability to enter into a practice? And so the practice, and this is where the ego really bucks. It's hilarious. And I, I say this from uh, you know, you know, several years of experience now, watching these people who are so totally committed to this work, all right? And they will go so far. Because if they, only, if, if they can go so far, then what happens is everything that they've always accepted as being true can still hold, right? And they don't have to question anything. And uh, meditation is exactly what puts us into this, this space, radical transformation. And there are two ways of doing it. And I come from a school where uh, the teacher of my teacher used to refer to it as give your cow a big pasture, he used to say. 
And so he was referring then to the, uh, the mind. Give your mind a big pasture. I happen to really uh, think that this, I, I happen to really think that this uh, tends to bring out marvelous, marvelous stuff in people. It's not as quick as some, but it's marvelous, okay, in the purest sense of that word, marvel. And here's why. Um, the other, the, you know how uh, cattle will go into, remember, uh, uh, my family was a series of uh, Arkansas farmers, actually, and my grandfather used to talk about how you would, he would ha one of his jobs was to uh, get their cattle into these chutes. I think that's what you call them, chutes or, or something, you know, where, where he would narrow them out. You had this herd, and you get them in so they go one at a time, right? And so it's like a, like a funneling system. And there are certain mind techniques that can get us into that funneling system where we turn our mind into a laser beam of, of intensity and so forth. We begin to, uh, uh, oh, who, who was it? I was just reading this, this, uh, this book on this, and I, I can't remember. I, can, well, I don't know how important it is uh, to footnote this, but just, just know this is not me. <laughs> Uh, the idea was here to, uh, you, you, have, you have two ways of, uh, uh, of meeting this fruit, the fruit of awakening. And one way is to allow the fruit to ripen. And the ripening happens uh, as long as there is uh, sunshine, oxygen, okay, water, all that stuff, right? And that's what meditation brings. Without meditation, the tree itself starves. Okay? It wants to bear fruit, but it can't. All right? The other way of getting that fruit is to shake the tree. Okay? And there are certain techniques that will allow us to shake the tree of awareness. So the fruit will drop, but the fruit is not what? It's not ripe. So this is why so often you will find people who have had these you know, blast-through experiences, you know, and they can even talk about it beautifully from this space, yet they get caught in a sex scandal or they are found, you know, just being raging alcoholics or drug addicts or spending their sangha's money. Or, you get the idea? Mm -hmm. They never riped. They never ripened. Sleeplessness, sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty soon I'm not even going to conjugate verbs. They're just... <laughs> Children's is learning, right? Um, <laughs> Did I just say that? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Still, you get the idea here that it's, that it's this process. We don't ripen. Our awareness does not ripen. Our awareness cannot expand. It cannot expand unless stillness is woven in. That, that is one axiom. Every, every teacher will tell you that. Otherwise, what you get is what we call the rubber band effect, which is, if you imagine me holding the, uh, a rubber band between two of my fingers here and then pulling with this, it's, oh my God, I see it. You know, it just snaps right back, right? It's like, the, the, it's like you go to a retreat, you know, you get goosed, and then you kind of come back, and then, oh my God, I cannot stand when my husband doesn't, you know, or, or whatever. You're, it doesn't, there's no gravitational pull. There's no ripening. And so that's why I'm a huge advocate of giving your cow a big field and make sure that you start observing that cow constantly. This way your life becomes a meditation. You're constantly observing the cow, constantly watching what he or she is doing. 
Just watch the cow. <laughs> and as we watch the cow more and more and more and more, we start seeing, oh my gosh, how silly is that? <laughs> you know? There becomes this fluidity. By the way, you know what fluidity in Latin? Humor. We start developing this incredible sense of humor, this whole process. And we start seeing exactly what gets in our way. Exactly what gets in our way. And what, what that really is, is the cow believes it's the whole story. The cow believes that it is all there is. All right? And what does that do? Whenever a cow believes it is the whole story, we are locked and buried under, underneath lots and lots of stuff. Okay? Lots of nonsense. All right? I don't like calling it delusion because that really brings out the cow in all of us. Like, Screw you, I'm not deluded. Moo. Moo, 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 moo. You know? Right? But that's exactly, that's exactly the way it tends to work. And again, this is just a, a, a model that lots of other people have really, really written so brilliantly on. Um, but I think it really fits with what it is that any spiritual practitioner is, uh, is trying to move toward. Okay? Now, we, we have it in our minds that we're moving towards a greater opening, a greater awareness, all that stuff. And actually, what are you doing? You're uncovering all the stuff that allows that, what is already always been there to show up consciously in the way you meet the world. So that's kind of the process. And your hand was up, young lady, yes. You answered my question, but I have oh, another question. Sure. <laughs> Going good, Barb. Good. Me. Good. <laughs> good questions. Good. Going to me and you. Yeah. This group, ITP, our Sangha. Sure. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how that helps the, the, the group, the me and you? Yeah. It, yeah, how does the me and you help actually get us past the me and you? Mm -hmm. We begin to recognize how the me and the you are really actually the same thing. Over time, sanghas, okay, or groups or whatever, if they're doing their job right, they're actually helping support a transcendence of the group itself. Okay? As long as, long as the center of gravity, as long as it's a, as long as it's a pull... Okay? If the intention of a group is to consciously meet the world, it's about expanse. And the group itself will reflect that. Um, I have met up with several groups that are less about that and more about a person, okay? A guru, or uh, a faith, or a doctrine, a dogma, stuff like that. And as a result, they can't take the practitioners as far as a group that actually does not take itself as the whole story. Is the minute, in other words, the sangha or the group begins to recognize itself as being deeply here as opposed to special. Then what happens? It, it, it just, it evolves of its own accord. So what's really cool about groups that are doing their work well is they're challenging. They challenge each other and themselves constantly, constantly to go past the I, to go past the I, 
uh, and this is hard. This is hard. There are all sorts of really cool, like one of the great practices down here and in here are like um, uh, affirmations. Or like, I create my own reality. No, you don't. The ego does not create the whole reality. It creates its reality. But it doesn't create reality. Now, this is terribly difficult for people who uh, have, have like centered practices around, I will create my own world. Okay, well, to a certain extent, that is so powerful. Of course you do. But what you do really is you create a participation in the world. You adjust your relationship to all that is, as opposed to adjusting all that is. Does that make sense? And so this can be, this can be really tricky. I'm, I'm totally in favor of affirmations, for instance. Okay? And groups can do them too, beautifully. Beautifully. Okay? But unless the affirmation is about helping to create the I sense that can go past itself. What are we doing? We're creating a bunch of cows that think they have just created their own pasture. Okay? So it's really... Go ahead. Could you give us an example of what an affirmation like that might sound like? Yeah, I remember I, I watched the... Uh, those? <laughs> I'm sorry, you mean these? Yeah. Right. Um, I think, I think, off the top of my head, my sleep-deprived brain, um, I can't come up with an affirmation that a group has done other than prayers that are exclusionary. I've heard prayers that are exclusionary. You know, um, wisdom traditions can do this. You know, I mean, I'll give you a great example: the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which hides behind revelations in the Bible. Most of its most of its work, uh, Al Qaeda, all right, which hides behind a kind of a bastardized version of the Quran, uh, the Om cult in Japan, a Buddhist group that just really twisted the Buddhist teachings. In addition to kamikaze pilots who were largely Buddhist monks, I don't know if you knew that. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, yeah, Buddhist monks. Soto, Soto Zen, Rinzai Zen, Buddhist monks. Because of course, there's no self, right? So why does this crashing into this aircraft carrier mean anything? Tojo got that one right. He knew who to recruit. All right. So, so I guess that would be the best way I could best way I could describe that. There's something that's coming up for me on this one. Yeah. Because as, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about how different this group is from any other community we've been a part of. Yeah, and what we do have is I don't know that it's an explicit affirmation, but it's mind, body, heart, and soul. Right, and it's human potential, whatever that may be. And what I find very challenging about this community is we're trying to let everybody continue to be individuals and what that means for them in their search for their mind, body, heart, and soul. So we go through this thing about, is it important to show up on time? Or is it important that we respect the paces of different people in the community? Or is it important that we do this process one way? Or is it important that we give somebody the experience of leadership? It's like I constantly see us dancing back and forth about, so what does it mean to come together with this whole area of human potential and stay in community, and yet everybody is somewhere different. And I just, I find it a very difficult discipline because the me is like, there's a way that I think this should be pursued, and I'll be honest about it, there is. I mean, yeah. that's the ego thing. Yeah. 
and yet at the same time, I'm trying to say, well, wait, there's a you out there. There's different paths that people are on. There's different approaches. That's exactly right. Pacing. But and how do we stay connected? Well, that's such a great that's such a great question. Yeah, everybody's going to come from a different place. Right. Everybody's going to come from a different place. But I'll give you an example. I'll use punctuality as a. Uh, okay. I, I just think that's a really cool one because every sangha deals with it. Okay. Right. Um, and the I will go the I will go the time honored way. Mm-hmm. that people tend to work through it. Mm-hmm. And then I will give you the Western way that has kind of been bastardized. First of all, the way that they have gone through it for thousands of years is the meditation bell rings precisely at 5.15. If you're not here, don't come into the Zendo. Period. Mm-hmm. All right? The thing that keeps you from getting to the Zendo at 5.15 is what? Resistance. The ego. Don't tell me what to do. I, I can do this on my own. It's my own. It's my path. Okay. It's it's whose path? Mine. Moo. <laughs> right. 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 It's not your path. It's not even our path. It's a way. Okay. And the way, capital T-H-E, capital W-A-Y, is the way that goes beyond name and form. Right. Ego is form. Sangha has a name. All right? right? So the way Sangha can usually best support this is to not allow for the, the, hey man, I'm doing my own thing. That gets really mushy, and mushy is exactly where ego wants to be. Ego wants to be in a space of what we call, in, in my tradition, we called it grandmother zen. It's like, oh, oh, you fe- you feeling tired? Oh, sleep, sleep today. Just sleep. Ego loves that. And what it hates is what w- they told me was called the Zen of the Ancients, which is get your ass to the Zendo now. Shut up. Right? All sorts of resistance came up, but then what did that allow for? It allowed for, allowed for all of us to feel the ego skin. And then in the next moment, when we look at the, the master or the teacher and the love that was coming. Mm-hmm. It was not about drill sergeant, I'm going to kill you. It was about drill sergeant, guess what's on its way. Mm-hmm. You understand the difference? And so, so rules, rules actually help keep this from holding, from holding the, the group back. Um, Life gets in the way, though. Mm-hmm. All right? Life got in the way for me this morning. I, I, I normally am here a little bit earlier, but there was no chance it wasn't going to happen. You know what? There's, there's a degree of flexibility. Mm-hmm. But the very thing that keeps you from getting here on time, especially if it's perpetual. And I think that's the very edge that we're at as a community. Interesting. The whole thing about where do we commit to a certain thing. Well, I would add one more thing to what you, what you commit to. Mm-hmm. The, the implicit mantra is, help me with it, it's body, mind, heart, and soul. Bar, body, mind, heart, and soul, mm-hmm. as what? You commit to that as what? Well, the way I see it is, uh, well, it's a, it's a way to which fully achieve potential. Let me ask the question differently. What is it that commits to all that? What is it? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> so, so I'll keep asking it. What is it that makes the commitment? Is it well, this? It's all of the, it's everything. 
It's all of those levels. That's, that's where you're getting. Because the thing is, if you can make that commitment as this, and this is the final step, spirit, right. you're there. Otherwise, it's spiritual masturbation. Mm-hmm. It's just, let's, let's hang out and talk about things that aren't religious and threatening, but spiritual. And that, that's really a beautiful thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But it, it, understand, if you commit to body, mind, heart, and soul as spirit, it changes the entire intention. It changes the direction. It disallows for this. It takes ego out of it. It takes mind out of it. All right? That's not that mind can't participate. It can, but it's no longer the boss. The cow has to, the cow is seen. And when the cow knows it's seen as just being a cow that's grazing, what does it do? It just moves. And that moo doesn't resonate the way song resonates. That's what the universe is. Universe, one song. Yeah. Please. In the terms of a practice, or a part of our practice, Mm -hmm. I find in my own experience, if I always do it exactly the same way, Mm -hmm. I am soon doing it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And I am not there anymore. Right. I'm being a cow, is what I'm being. Because I'm walking around eating grass, and I'm not aware of what I'm doing. Right. But when I do it a little differently, Mm -hmm. freshly, Mm-hmm. I then become aware right. and engaged again. Right. That's really, that's really cool. It's an interesting point. So then the question would be, as I'm understanding it, um, and help me if I blow this, but it's like, if, if I do it habitually, it's no longer fresh. Exactly. If, if I can change it up a little each time, it's fresh. Yeah. How do I keep a practice from becoming a habit? Right. How do I keep a practice from becoming a habit? And always doing it. Well, that's the way you're supposed to do it. Right. Because that's a habit. <laughs> right. Right. For me. Right. For whom? Right. Right there. Right. Okay. Right here. <laughs> Moo. You understand? So the cow. Exactly. <laughs> the cow, in other words, uh-huh. wants to make sure it's still in control, because. God forbid it ever became something mundane. How would I deal? Moo, moo, moo. Right? So in other words, finding freshness in, I'm going to use a word here that's totally loaded, but just, so be careful. Finding freshness in ritual. Ritual has this ability either to kill uh, ego. No, I'm not going to say that. Has this ability to diminish egoic control or it can totally enhance it. I happen to think that ritual done well can actually allow for the ego to recognize that it is not the whole story. That in fact what ritual does is it makes even the mundane holy. Okay? When, when we are in a situation where ritual begins to deaden us, okay, that's simply the skin of ego saying, eh, no longer interested it's mind. Ah, think about something else. And that's where your practice can begin, is trying to do it mindfully every single day. And that's excruciatingly difficult. This is excruciatingly difficult to get to consciously, but that's your path. And it's actually a very good sign. See, I think it's, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a 
exactly get that it's like the ritual can be habit or mm-hmm. it can be meaning. It, ha- it mm-hmm. can have meaning yeah. and purpose. Right. Do a, you know, a, a practice can be something that you just repeat. Mm-hmm. Or it can be something that you engage, you maintain the meaning, meaning you are mindful all the time of it. Yeah. Rather than repeating it. Right. I'm big on this repeating thing. It's like, yeah. don't replay it. Do it anew. Every time. Every time. So here's, here's, here's a practice for you personally. Okay. Okay. For the next year. This is a big homework assignment, but I think you can do it. Okay. Son of a gun, right? Okay. And anybody else who wants to play can do it too. But a great practice for, for mindfulness in this, in this capacity, in this, this arena that you're talking about. Every single time you step into the shower or bath. I want you to notice, number one, it's temperature. Not whether you like it or not, just notice the temperature. And when you wash, I want every inch of your body to be touched somehow. And that you pay very close attention. Did I get between my toes, right? Try that, okay? And then watch your mind in that process. Because there's going to be a tendency, most likely, in week two, you're going to be really good about it. You're going to, okay, yeah, man, I got this down, I got this down. And the next thing you know, you're thinking about, what the heck am I going to do at the, you know, up, and then catch yourself. And just get right back to the washing. All right? That's a heavy duty practice. As simple as that sounds, you know, I mean, you're not being asked to do any heavy lifting, but what that does is it it essentially allows that your experience moment by moment to be anew with a re-recognition of being, okay? Like being with a child. It's exactly like being with a child. It's exactly like being with a child. Try that. And then report back. <laughs> so I'm very clean. Very clean these days. Yes? I'm intrigued by your observation of how groups can support the process. Mm-hmm. And, um, as I reflect on our group, it seems like in our structure, our process, we don't, using your words, challenge each other very much. Mm-hmm. We don't have an opportunity for that. We go through uh, regular physical ritual. We go through... <clears throat> you know, kind of socialization. Yeah. And we do um, guest speakers. Which yeah. Is, I'm happy we're doing that. But uh, can you give us an example from the groups that you've observed mm-hmm. or participated in? Yeah. How they support that? I think the, I think the key thing. I sorry to interrupt. Uh, how they supported the the ones that I challenge I saw most successful. You mean how did they support? Challenge. Challenge each other. Right. Um, I will say that uh, you automatically uh, do something that I think is really healthy, um, and that is you have guest speakers. That is very healthy. What doesn't work, I've seen it again and again and again, are groups that choose very, very, you know, uh, consciously to be leaderless. And when you have a leaderless group, what I keep seeing, there have been five or six examples of this that are really, really stand out, and they surprised me. It was as if no one was home. And so what you had, you didn't have anybody who was essentially modeling. You didn't have anybody that was challenging. 
and you had no one with authority, what you had was a bunch of resistance to people who actually did have breakthroughs. Because if that person has a breakthrough, I'm, I'm going to start mowing. Because that means they're somehow ahead of me. And they may not want to be, right? So what you do in leaderless groups is you create groups that are very egocentric. And as a result, they're perpetually blind. They're fumbling, fumbling around when the path is so clear. It's so clear. Uh, I think that, that that's a really key thing then when you have guest speakers. If you're going to be without a leader, like, you know, um, like in the traditional sense, like, I mean, the way we do it at Infinite Smile, it's, I just give a talk each week, but there is a certain, there is a certain sense, I think, among the Sangha that they're okay with my position, right? Um, my hope is that I don't have to be there very long, that soon people are going to start being able to sit up there as well, because that's what it is. This is a conveyor belt. I am not interested in having people listen to me each week. I'm really not. I am interested very much in realization among people. That's important to me. So to that extent, if there can be kind of a conveyor belt where these people kind of start realizing, guess what, it's your turn, I'm going to go spend time with my daughter. But not until, not until, and not until it's grounded in something deeper than just show up to hear somebody speak on Mondays. Do they have a stillness practice? How are they moving in the world? They're just little things. And so, so I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for you other than to say whoever you have come speak to your group, what level are they speaking to you from? Are they teaching you something that helps here in the gross realm? Are they teaching you something that helps with visualization or mind or is intellectually stimulating? Are they teaching you something that goes way past your sense of who you are? I would push here. Get people that lean in that direction. Okay? These are dime a dozen. You can find people all the time here. And you can find scholars that are here. You can find, I mean, there are all sorts of people you can get. And I'm not judging their, their gifts at all. They're all Buddha. Okay? But where do they take the group? Is the group being challenged here? Is it being challenged at a causal level? And this becomes kind of a commitment for everybody in a particular group. Can, can we do this? This is hard. <laughs> this is really difficult. This is really difficult. I have heard people in our group bringing that up. I mean, just mm -hmm. real time saying, am I being challenged enough? Like if I'm in the, the community, I want to be challenged. And yet it's How though? Experience. The question though is not, am I being challenged? How do you want to be challenged? Because do you want to be challenged with really cool text? Or do you want to be challenged with like a... a it's the values level. Yeah. It's like, am I committing to an all of us approach or what's beyond all of us? Or am I dabbling? And I think we've, as a community, I see us do little things where we dabble with it. Yeah. Where we have some decision-making processes. Or even today, a couple of times, we had feedback that was all over the map. Yeah. Anyways, I, I hear people pulling for it to some degree. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's so, such a marvelous process. And if you think about it also, this is, um, this is, this has been going on now for formally uh, for upwards of 3,500 years, 4,000 years. 
which you're doing right now here. Okay? This is how groups form. The, but, but the key is, especially with spiritual, spiritual uh, teachings and leanings, is the, um, the minute it's about your spiritual growth, it's diminished. The minute it's just about ours, it's diminished. The minute it's for all beings, then if that's the pull, right, instead of a push, it's a pull, this is the natural expression of the universe. The universe is evolving. It is expanding naturally on its own. We're, you're not doing anything. The universe is expanding. We're part of the universe. We must be too. Right? And so letting that guide so that it's a... This is selfless in the most divine sense. It's self, small selfless, big self-full. Big self-ish. <laughs> right? Co-creation fits there somewhere. Co-creation is this. Co-creation is that you are simply the arising of all things. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay? Co-creation, or what we call um, dependent co-arising in my tradition, is where everything arises together. Your understanding of something arises based on the input of something else. But it's not yours. It's your mind's, and it's going to hang on to it for dear life. But then we're locked here. All right? It's when we start letting go that stuff happens here. That doesn't mean free-for-all, no organization, all rules are cool. Actually, it's those rules, those boundaries that allow for this to then begin to percolate up through. So, and that, again, these are just my... My experiences, my, what I've been able to see from my seat. Uh, but it's a very, very powerful. And also, it rattles us. <laughs> it rattles us. Damn, that's sweet. If you're not getting rattled, why are you here? Why are you here? All right? It's about, it's about kissing that experience of the unknown, the not known, that really allows us to evolve in really conscious, beautiful ways. Any other questions? Michael, we're reaching our time frame. So if anyone has a question or... Yeah. You just said why. That's, that's something that you know seems to be really important. I'm sorry, which... Is, so why? why? Why would you yeah. do this? I mean, yeah, for why individually, like why... Is that important for... Oh, why is challenge? Yeah. Why is the rattling important? You never get out of this if you're not rattled. But I mean, what, like, to have that as... I mean, it, what, what do you see as the place for that in terms of your getting you... Uh, pulling you through this process? Because this knows. This is absolute. This is fundamentalist, right? And that fundamentalist spirit can carry on into this, Okay. That fundamental spirit where it's, where it's me, I know what's right, or I can grasp this, all right? That then can be groupified, where the group can do the same type of thing, right? We grasp this, right? Once you break through the Sambhogakaya into the Dharmakaya, there's nothing to grasp, all right? And that usually can happen either of its own accord where there's a release or it can happen from rattling and it just can no longer hang on, right? 
So the rattling then, uh, the, the reason why I use that particular uh, 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 metaphor is that this is caged. The cage doesn't break open without it getting, it, it needs to be shaken, right? And it's not comfortable. It's also beautiful. And the relationship with that lack of comfort becomes something that we meet every single day with the stillness practice. And if we're not meeting it with the stillness practice, if we don't, then we're not, we're not literally exposing ourselves to that flame. You, you get to a point where you, you are so exposed to it that you realize, I'm no longer afraid of this. And then you begin to walk into it. And as the minute you walk into it, it's not, it's not that it burns burns you away as much as, as it is. It burns everything away that does not matter. And there's no pain because you are the flame. But that, that edge, that edge right in there, oof, it's hard, hard work. It's really hard work. So I don't know that that answers your question. And I, I certainly, I mean, I hope I didn't drop a bomb because I, th I think you guys, you guys are in a place, I think, and I, I've met with you several times now. I've met with you several times. You're in a place where you can go for the intellectual stuff all you want. You guys are smart people. You guys are smart people. Don't let that tendency, don't let that be the center of gravity. Push, push. It's beautiful out there. It is beautiful out there. Don't take my word for it either. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.